Hey, good morning and welcome. My name is Brian. Uh, this is our Valley Town Church online sermon for this Sunday. Uh, bear with me a little bit. I've, I've rearranged my tech a tad and I'm going to try to keep up with the sermon slides as best as I can. I'm dual wielding here. Uh, but anyways, this week we're continuing our series called What Would Jesus Ask You? And we take a look at some of the questions he asked individuals during his earthly ministry. And since people's hearts are still very much the same, uh, having the same rebellion towards God and tendencies and their own desires that they chase after, and since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it's very likely he has some of the same thoughts uh, about our lives, our motives, the things that we think about, the things that we pursue. And so even though I'm, yes, I acknowledge, taking these verses out of context, so disclaimer, uh, these are things that Jesus thought and asked people. And it's likely, as the Holy Spirit is revealing God's word to us and leading us into all truth, that the Holy Spirit might be stirring up in our hearts as well, trying to reveal these things in us that are perhaps displeasing to him or stirring us up towards love and good works, right? And things that maybe we're already doing. And so uh, this question that we're going to look at today is one that's found in this encounter that Jesus has with some of the religious leaders. Let's just jump right in. Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 9. Uh, here we are. Boom. And so he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they're asking Jesus a question uh, so that they might accuse him. And so their intent is to entrap Jesus. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And so he's asking them a question, and it's about your own animal. And it's not necessarily indicating that the life of this animal is in jeopardy. It's just that you would want to reduce the suffering in the life of an animal. In the Old Testament, I believe it's in the Proverbs, it says that a righteous man cares for the life of his animal. And so he's saying, hey, which one of you, if this happened to you on a Sabbath day, and based on your current interpretation and your human traditions regarding the Sabbath, wouldn't you still help your animal? And now here's the question that uh, we're going to look at for today. This is going to be the driving theme. He then says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so this is the question that Jesus asks. How much more value is a man than a sheep? And so this indicates that Jesus already believes that a man is more valuable than a sheep. He builds that into his question. And he's not necessarily looking for like a factor of this or a thousand sheep equals a man, uh, right? You could perhaps calculate the cost of a sheep, uh, the labor cost of an individual, the number of lives that they might work and try to figure out some economic value. But that's not what Jesus is actually looking for here. He's not looking for an answer to the question, but it is a question that needs to be asked because these people have already undervalued a human being compared to what their own hearts and their own attitudes would do for an animal, okay? And so this is what Jesus asks them, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so he says, we can do good in this context, specifically to other people on the Sabbath, right? That this wasn't, this law was given to be a blessing and a gift to humanity, not as a means for you to neglect doing good and godly things to other people. Let's see. And then he asks, uh, let's see. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And so Jesus asks this question, right? He says, right, obviously you care for animals. Humans are worth more than animals, is what he's implying with the question. 
But the fact that it's in the form of a question is kind of targeting the, the reality inside of our hearts, that even though we might not ever say, I value an animal more than a human being, the way we act, the way we live, the way we treat other people may bring us to that point. Our heart motives and our intents might, in fact, expose these flaws in us as we think less of other people. And so Jesus reveals this. And one of the things to take away from this is to recognize, okay, God views me as more valuable than a sheep. Okay, and so much more valuable than a sheep. Uh, and so this is worth to think about ourselves, like, okay, like whether I've uh, neglected to value my life in the way that God would, or if I'm, you know, deeming my life as, you know, being in a state or season of discomfort or suffering uh, or considering myself unworthy or self-condemning, right? God values me. God values you. But the context of his question is regarding our value of other people. How do we perceive other people? And Jesus wasn't seeking to prevent this man's death. Right? It wasn't as though, like, if he didn't heal him in that moment, he was going to die. No, he was trying to reduce this man's suffering by a day. Because, right, the Pharisees would have had no issue with Jesus if he just, like, healed him the next day. Right? But Jesus considers aiding others, reducing their suffering, to be a worthy pursuit, a godly thing to do. And so he wasn't going to allow them to limit his ability to obey God in doing these good things, even on the Sabbath. And when he asks, is it lawful to do good to others on the Sabbath day, or what he's kind of implying here, it points out that God values other people more than sheep, okay, but also more than human traditions, that he wasn't going to allow their particular interpretation or their rabbi's interpretation of the law to limit his obedience to God, to limit his genuinely and authentically loving other people. And so I want to point out that we're going to now jump throughout the Bible and take this theme and, and explore here. But it's a, this is the idea. Man is more valuable than animals. Okay? In fact, creation was made for humanity. And both creation and humanity were made to give glory to God. It says this in Psalm chapter 8, uh, verse 3. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And so the psalmist is pondering, like looking at the majesty of God's creation and recognizing his obvious power, right? His divine nature, these invisible attributes that Paul talks about in Romans chapter one that are evident within the things that God has made. And he's saying like, we are so insignificant, it seems, compared to everything that you've made. And who is man that he's even worth a moment of thought in the mind of God, right? What, why are you even bothering to think about us? But never mind just the fact that God thinks about people. He cares for people, right? Suggested in this next passage. And the son of man, that you should care for him. And, and he continues, verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. And so what he's suggesting here is that man, humanity, is the pinnacle of God's creation. That not only does he have a dominion, as we'll see in a moment, over the animals, okay, but that all of the works of God's hands have been given to humanity, that all of creation is part of this good world with which we collaborate with God, we work with God uh, to give glory to him, right, to, to love him, to love others, that all of this creation is meant for us to, in part, 
enjoy. And this was all for us, that he's made us a little lower, right, than the heavenly beings, but he's crowned us with glory and honor, that we are somehow distinct, we are different than the rest of his creation. And he's given us authority over his creation, right? He's put all things under his feet, all sheep, there we go, and oxen, and also the beasts of the field. Oh, let's see, sorry, I'm behind a little bit on the slides. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes uh, along the paths of the seas. And so all of creation has been placed under man's authority. All of creation was meant for us. And we and creation are all meant to give glory to God. Later on in Psalms, the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? That creation itself praises God. Or like Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey during the week of Passover, in which he says, if these babes don't cry out, if these people don't cry out, the very rocks will praise me. And so God is worthy of glory. Our lives are intended to give him glory. And we are valuable, we are cared for, we are precious in the sight of God. And so, uh, if we, so in Psalm chapter 8, he's reflecting back on the creation story in the book of Genesis. And he's doing that hundreds of years after it had been written. And in Genesis chapter 1, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so this was very similar to Psalm 8. Let's see. There we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get better at this. Here we go. Uh, this is This part of the verse is similar to Psalm 8, talking about, our dominion over the rest of creation. But there's this difference in the beginning of the verse, which is this idea that God made us in his image. And what's interesting is, although the creation, when God made Adam and Eve, male and female, was at the beginning, is the way Jesus says it in Matthew 19, this story wasn't written down until, it seems, Moses' time. It seems it was written by him many years later. And so when Moses wrote this, it had been cultural practice that of many nations and tribes, that those who were in authority, right, kings and whatever tribal leaders there were, would declare themselves and their communities would also agree that they were the image of God, that they were representing God, that they were somehow distinct from the rest of humanity, that they were special. And that they were, right, worthy of additional honor and praise compared to the rest of people. But what's interesting in uh, this account that Moses documents for us, which I believe is true, and Jesus did as well, uh, is that God created all of humanity in his image. Uh, that all of us are representatives of him on the earth. That this idea of an image also at that time would be uh, demonstrated in the idea of if a ruler or a king had multiple cities that they were in charge of, sometimes they would build a statue of themselves in those cities that would then represent their authority. It was an image of them. And it was a reminder to all the people that their authority was right reigning over that city. And so similarly here, this idea that we are made in the image of God, although it certainly can mean many, many things, and Christians have speculated over the years what it could be. It also means that like we represent God on the earth. We represent his authority, that we are partnering with him in our ruling over his creation. And so God has made humanity different. And humanity is valuable specifically because of this image that we bear, this likeness to God that we and all humans have. And so uh, it wasn't just, by the way, in case you're wondering, well, like, well, what if this was merely talking about Adam or Adam and Eve? But no, it's, it's all people in the way that we see the rest of the scriptures uh, expose this. In Genesis chapter 9, this is after Noah 
gets off of the ark, and yes, God judged humanity for their sin. Uh, in Genesis 9, God says this to Noah. He says, and for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I'm still on the wrong, crazy. All right, we're getting there, we're getting there. Here it is. And let's see. And from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning uh, for the life of man. And then it's got this little like poet poetic demonstration here. It's whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. And the reason that God says this, the reason that God decrees and commands this respect for the life of humanity, individuals, not just as a group is because God made man in his own image. And so we see that God has established this theme, that it's not just right the very first humans that came into existence, but no, it's all people, regardless of their age, regardless of whether they're rich or poor, whatever their race may be, all humans, we are all bearing God's image. And because we are representing God, an attack on a human being is an attack on God and his kingdom. And so this is a significant thing. And now what's really peculiar about this is God just judged the world, right? God had just destroyed sinful people, rebellious people. Except here he's saying, if someone sheds the blood of another man, he's expecting other people to then shed that individual's blood. That he's expecting humans who are imperfect in their judgment to then be the ones to bring about justice in that scenario. And so that's like really sloppy if you think about it. But the point I want to give here is that God cares about individuals. And his making us in his image is the thing that gives us this intrinsic value, right? We are like God, not in every way, in some ways. Jesus indicates the value of individuals as well in Matthew uh, 6.26, when he's talking about the fact, uh, you know, about don't worry about tomorrow, uh, don't worry about your life, your food, your clothing, he says this, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so once again, he's applying this to you, and the fact that you don't have to worry as much about your life because God cares for his creation and he cares for you more than other parts of his creation because, right, he's made you in his image. He wants to have relationship with you. Or in Matthew 10, 31, he says, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so Jesus, right, he's talking about you're more value than the birds, uh, you, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? And now he's saying, okay, a man is worth many sparrows. But what's interesting in this passage, the thing that Jesus is encouraging his disciples about is the fact that they will experience persecution for following him, that others in the world will mistreat them and yes, even kill them. And what he's telling them is to, it's not as though following God will somehow remove the risk of the first death, death in this world. But he's saying, listen, you don't have to worry. That God cares for you. You are worth many sparrows. All right, both believers and unbelievers will experience death in this life, but there's something more significant than that, and I hope to explore that in future weeks. Another uh, concept that I want to point out is God doesn't simply value those who are, right, seeking him or believing in him, but God values all people. In fact, when Jonah, a prophet who was supposed to be representing God, not merely in his image, but also by speaking and proclaiming the words of God uh, to this city Nineveh that God had called him to, uh, he was kind of judgmental. Like, he wanted to see that city condemned. He had a high sense of justice. And these people admitted that they were wicked people, okay? And so they probably wouldn't fully have disagreed. But nonetheless, they repent. And, and Jonah is disappointed that God is merciful towards them. 
and Jonah is wanting to see them judged. He wants to see their entire city destroyed, but God cares for these people. God cares for people who hadn't yet really even followed him. And so in Jonah chapter 4, verse 10, it says, And the Lord said, uh, you can go catch the narrative on your own. Uh, it says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which it came into being in a night and perished in a night. Right? Jonah was all depressed because he had the shade from a plant and then it died. And he said, And should I not, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And so God is saying, like, I have pity on these people, even though they've been wicked, even though they've been rebellious. I don't hastily come to the conclusion to bring about judgment. He says, listen, there's 120,000 human beings in that city, Jonah. I'm going to be slow to anger. I'm going to be slow to bring about justice and judgment against them for their sin. And God ends up being merciful towards them. And he's now more interested in working in the heart of Jonah, someone who is believing and following him, to bring about this greater compassion for his fellow man. So I want to point out uh, that God loves even those who don't love him. God loves sinners. Okay, in Ezekiel, God says uh, to, the, to the nation of Israel, he says, why would you die, O Israel? Like, why would you commit in your rebellion and sin? Why would you commit in walking away from me when it's going to end up in bringing about your own destruction? Right, he says that I don't delight in the death of the wicked. That God's not desiring to see that come about. God loves and values his creation, even those who would rebel against him, right? Uh, think about, right, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, and it's not talking about earth itself, he's talking about people, that he gave his one and only begotten son, right? God loves even those who don't love him. In fact, right, God showed his great love for us when he died for us when we were still sinners, okay? And so God values people. Uh, God doesn't uh, merely associate uh, an economic value to people, but he actually, he loves people. He more than just values them. He loves them. He cares for them. And so one of the things that Jesus would be asking us is, do we value other people in the same way? Do we care for people in the same way? Right? Do we recognize how much God values all people, right? And so here's an interesting thing that I want to explore, right? God values all kinds of people. In uh, Galatians, Paul writes this, uh, in which, right, he indicates that when we come to the Lord, every person is on this equal footing. He says this, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, all right, I still got the same verse <laughs> up on the screen. For as many of you uh, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All right, oh, I ended up skipping the wrong part, didn't I? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither... Uh, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he's indicating that when it comes to belief in Jesus, when it comes to being adopted into God's family, that we're all on equal footing. We all have access to God through Jesus when we've placed our faith and belief and trust in him. And so God values all of us. There's, there, it doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter whether you've been a slave or whether you're a free person. It doesn't matter what your gender is. That God invites all people to him. And in his family, we're all equal. Paul writes a similar thing in Colossians 3, verse 9. He says, Do not lie to one another, uh, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
And so he's describing that this new life that we have in Jesus, uh, then over time, as we mature, as we're sanctified, we become better and better representatives of God. We are better images of God as we mature and become more like him. And, and as far as those who are in the family of God, who have put off the old self and put on the new self, he says here, here there is not Greek and Jew, uh, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so here's the good news, right? We all are valued in the family of God. And since we all have value, right? Like God's going to ask us to treat people with that value, right? That we don't think of ourselves as being better than other people. Uh, and even in the Old Testament, before the nation of Israel even had kings, right? God had actually written hundreds of years before there was a king, laws and decrees, commands for those kings, limiting their power and letting them know the kind of right authority that they should rule under. And so in Deuteronomy 17, uh, Paul, or God says this in the Old Testament, Moses writing, uh, only this king, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so, right, he's, God is saying to these future kings, this is the way you rule. You don't get to build a harem for yourself. You don't get to build slaves for yourself. You don't get to like accrue all of this wealth for you. It's not your kingdom. It's not about you. And in verse 19, he continues, uh, or verse oh, 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. So he's supposed to, like the king has homework, you've got to write this down. And the reason you do that is this, and it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life. And this is why, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God by keeping all the words uh, of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so even a king, right, someone who at that time in that culture, in that practice, would have been calling themselves the image of God and esteeming themselves worthy and deserving of much greater praise and abundance and even exploiting other individuals for their own benefit. And, and God's saying, no, that's not the kind of king that I would want you to be. You're not allowed to do those things. And I don't want in your heart even you to be lifted up above your brothers because your brothers are just as valuable you are okay all right and so as a result of people being valuable as a result of god ascribing to them value he had the expectations of his nation of his community to then treat people differently and it's once again still linked to this idea of they are made in god's image okay and so the people of god all humanity are made in the image of god and as a result, we should treat people differently. And so in a series of commands found in Leviticus, this is what he says, Leviticus 19, uh, verse 10. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so the, the thing he commands is to treat the poor and sojourners well right, to leave food in your vineyards for them to come and gather. And the reason he tells them this is because I'm the Lord, your God, right? Like, and by honoring them, we are honoring God, all right? The way we treat someone who is made in God's image, right, is the way that we're treating God. And so the image of God is not merely about, I didn't murder someone. No, it's about the way we love and care for other people. He says, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. 
You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. And so people who perhaps, right, because of their disabilities would have been mistreated or cast aside in these cultures in these time periods, he's saying, listen, they are made in my image. You do not mistreat them. They are valuable, right? Parts of their bodies may not function the way that you would want, right? But you still treat them with love and compassion. You do not, you do not try to find a way to abuse them for your own entertainment. And he says, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. And so the way we treat those who have disabilities, right, is with compassion and with love. And it's with respect, not just for them, but out of respect and fear for God, because mistreating them would be to be deserving of God's further judgment. He says, you shall do no injustice in court. Okay, and, and then he describes what justice looks like in the court. You shall be, you shall not be partial to the poor, which is kind of interesting because you might think like, well, wouldn't, doesn't God care for the poor? Yeah, he does. But they don't get additional bonus justice points in the court. Okay, he says, or defer to the great, right? Just because someone's wealthy or famous or has authority doesn't mean they get additional bonus justice points in the court either. But he says, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor, okay? So that you don't get to esteem one person above the other. He says, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So once again, the way you treat people, uh, possibly bringing judgment against them in a false way, or even the way you speak about other people, defamation of character is something that he links into this idea of humans being made in the image of God, that they are worthy of respect, okay? He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. And I, I love pointing these things out about the commands in scripture. If these were just man-made commands, what nation, what king, what government could ever enforce that law? No human government ever could. They can't determine what was in their heart, right? We can't identify what that is, but only God knows the heart of humanity, right? That we are all exposed before him, that our thoughts and intents are made clear to him. We will one day give an account to him for not just our actions, not just what we say, but even what we think and believe in our hearts. So he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. And so this is kind of even indicating if there's a discrepancy, a disagreement, right? You go and have conversation with them, right? That you, you don't want to build sin in your own life, whether out of anger or hatred or like just wrath or trying to be devious and find a way to attack them, right? You don't get to do that. What you have to do out of respect for God, out of respect for the humanity in your neighbor, Go and have a difficult conversation, reason frankly, with them. He says, uh, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so God, because people, because all humans are made in the image of God, right? The, the deaf and the blind, the poor and the sojourner, right? Whoever they are, they are deemed worthy of respect, of care, of compassion, and they are made in the image of God. We don't get to have different categories. We don't get to pick who we treat well and who we neglect. No, they are made in the image of God and out of respect for them and the God who made them and loves them. You're going to treat them with love and compassion. In the New Testament, Jesus says this in Matthew 18, where he kind of once again goes with this theme of we treat people differently because God ascribes to them value. And here he's speaking uh, specifically amongst those who are fellow believers. So he says this, 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And so notice how linked this idea of the image of God is. Jesus says, if you treat a child well, and he says this, I think, also in Matthew 20, 25. Uh, I think it's 25, right? He says, if you treat a child well, if you treat a person well, it's as though we are doing it to him. They are representing God. And the way we love God is the one of the ways we do that is how we love our neighbor. Uh, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And so now he's got this category of little ones. He's not simply talking about children. He's talking about believers, those who believe in him. And he says, whoever causes a believer, a young believer perhaps, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so Jesus is pretty strict and severe when it comes to those who would lead others into sin. He then says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And so we've got to be careful that we don't ever cause another believer to stumble, whether in our own example as believers or in the way that we communicate to them, the way we might encourage them, uh, or the fact that we might ignore blatant sin in their lives. And this is something that I think is particularly dangerous for those who are teachers of the word, because James says that those who teach are held to a stricter judgment. And it's tempting for pastors, okay, to, to just suddenly like condone sin, right, to uh, possibly even encourage it. It would be much more popular and comfortable for us to just be like, no, no, you don't have to worry about that. God loves you. God knows your heart. You, you know, you just go do your thing. You do you. Like, no, like we're not allowed to do that. Woe to us as preachers, as pastors, if we were to choose to do that. I don't get to do that. And it's partly because of God making you in his image. And I, I don't have the right to deceive you or to lead you astray into sin and right harm because of it. And then uh, skipping later on in verse 10, he says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. All right, and so similar to that idea of we can't hate our neighbor in our heart, the way that we treat them, the way we think about them, we need to respect and honor them as fellow humans. And in this case, these little ones, the context are those who are followers of Jesus, those who believe. But then he goes into a little bit more detail in a minute. He says, for I, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. Okay, that those who believe, even young believers, they, their angels, their representatives, right, have constant access to God. They're always before his face. Okay, and so just like uh, David saying in Psalm 8, like, who is man that you're mindful of us, right, or that you'd even, the son of man, that you would care for him, right, here it's indicating that God gives a, a lot of undivided attention, towards the care and concern for those who believe in him, who follow him, who have trusted in Jesus. And then it says, verse 12, uh, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And so here's Jesus asking a question. What's interesting about this question is it's in the context of young believers that have possibly gone astray. And so it seems as though Jesus is teaching us don't despise a believer who's stumbled into maybe even a season of sin, a season of straying, right? Don't develop this hatred for them in your heart that we still should love them. We should still seek God's face because he's mindful of them. He cares about them. And so Jesus is asking this question. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? He's asking this as though this is obvious, that this is just common practice amongst shepherds. Okay, and so he's saying like, this is what you would do as humans regarding your animal. 
Okay, and let's let's combine this idea with the G, the Jesus statement from earlier uh, using a we'll call the transitive property of inequality. Here we go. Right. So if we combine this idea that uh, if a sheep, one sheep is worth leaving the ninety nine for, and the fact that a man, how much worth, how much value, how much more value is a man than a sheep? Right. If I combine those two ideas, then we'd have this this conclusion: How much more should we seek those who would stray from the faith? Right. How much more should I value a man who strays? Than a sheep who strays, right? If I combine those two ideas. And so we should be more willing to be seeking God's face, to be praying for an individual who stumbles. We should be seeking them, is what this is suggesting, uh, and desiring for their return. And then he continues. He says, uh, and when he finds it, okay, when he finds that sheep, uh, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Okay, uh, and he says, oh, look, verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so he points out that God rejoices. He says that also in kind of Luke's uh, account of a similar parable that Jesus tells, very similar parable um, that Jesus tells about God rejoicing when those who have walked away return to him and that we likewise should value little ones who go astray that we should seek them out and bring them back and then we rejoice when they return right we don't stand in strict judgment of them of like where have you been sort of no uh and so so here we go let's keep going i want to point out brothers are worth seeking jesus goes into more detail he says verse 15 if your brother sins against you go and tell him Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so notice this. Your brother, made in the image of God, your brother is worth more than you holding on to your offense. Okay? Your brother is worth more than you being able to avoid an awkward and uncomfortable conversation. Right? That you get to gain your brother, if you're able to like reconcile with them, okay? That if, if someone has actually sinned against you, not just against God, but you've been a victim of their sin, Jesus is saying you go and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. Try to reconcile. This is something worth doing. Jesus values relationships. He doesn't say just avoid that person for the rest of your life. No. Brothers are worth seeking after. And then in uh, verse 21, Peter asks this question. He came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus tells this whole parable about this unjust servant. And in verse 32, in finishing the story, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all this debt when you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so right here, as well as when Jesus teaches us how to pray in the Our Father, he teaches this, this idea that God won't forgive us if we don't likewise forgive. Okay, that our brothers, we can't despise them in our hearts, that we have to seek after them when they've sinned against us, and that our brothers are worthy of forgiving when they've repented. That this is something that we should do. God withholds forgiveness from those who refuse to forgive. And so this indicates that God doesn't merely value human life, although he does, much more than that. He values human relationships. He values the family of God, and he's given clear instruction as to how we are to maintain that family. In James chapter 3, uh, one of the couple of places in the New Testament where the image of God concept is brought up, 
He says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so, similar to that passage we saw in Leviticus 19, we see that because God values people, we don't get to slander against them. We don't get to curse them. We don't get to call down judgment against them. Right? That we should be seeking the face of God on their behalf. We should be desiring to see uh, them fully restored if they went astray. Whatever the context of this disagreement is, right? we don't get to gossip about our brothers and sisters. That's not something we do. Uh, we must be careful not to damage their reputation in any way. And so even in the family of God, we must take care as to how we treat other people. I'm going to jump back to Colossians chapter 3, and I think this will be my last verse. Uh, and so I'd already read this verse, but notice the application that Paul goes into following this passage. So he says, once again, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, have been baptized, sort of thing like that, he says, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And so typically I've always read these kind of very separate from each other. I'm just thinking about like, oh, he's just talking about the way the church should treat one another and be forgiving and compassionate and kind and humble towards each other. But linked to that verse right before it, it seems like any sort of previous cultural background, any sort of distinction or class that you had or gender, whatever it was, right, prior to coming to Jesus, right, that all of those things, whatever disputes you might have with other believers, people in God's family that have likewise been adopted, that have been made in God's image and are being made more in his image as they become more like Jesus for the rest of their lives on this earth, right? In this context of these types of disagreements that could happen within the church family, these are the people that we need to be kind and humble and meek with. These are the people that we need to bear with one another and offer mercy and forgiveness towards when we even have a complaint with each other. Just as God has forgiven us, we must also forgive them. He says, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. <laughs> and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And so this whole idea of us being one body of believers, that we've all been adopted into the family of God, it's even more of a powerful concept when linked back to verse 11, that all of us, whatever our previous cultural background, wherever we're coming from, that we are made one body. We are being knitted together in love, right? That we are being united in Christ Jesus and that we all have equal access, equal footing before the Father. That all of us have been made in God's image in the way that we treat one another it matters. I don't get to simply have this relationship with God and then neglect my family, my brothers on the side, right? That the way I treat them is the way that I'm honoring and respecting and having fear and respect for God. It matters. So humans are valuable. How much more value is a man than a sheep? It's not just a matter of whether or not uh, you murder someone. It's not just a matter of whether or not, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, you have anger in your heart towards someone unjustly. Okay, he says, if you do that, you've already committed murder. Okay, but it's this way that we, we treat people. It's this way we care for people, the way we have compassion for people. The thing that Jesus was criticizing in that moment was the fact that the religious leaders had no compassion for their fellow man. Someone that was in their own nation, that they were neglecting, that they were finding, trying to find a way to catch Jesus and to plan his murder, 
right? They were not just neglecting the care for this individual. They were planning on murdering Jesus when they left. And it's all spouting from the same heart attitude. It's this undervaluing of human beings made in the image of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, God, that you've made a good and wonderful creation. You've placed us in it. You desire to have relationship with us. Uh, you've made it so that we can enjoy this good world that you've made, even though there will be seasons of struggle and suffering. And I thank you, God, that you intend on our needs being met, not merely through you, but you intend on us having care and compassion for one another, that we should be meeting the needs of each other. We should be loving each other and stirring each other up towards love and good works, Lord God. I ask that, God, you would, as your word was read this morning, just be shaping us, making us more like you, that we would resemble you in more ways than just being image bearers, but God, that we would be recognized as Christians, little Christs, as ones who are following you, representing you in this world, that, that we would be able to go forth, that people would know who we are. They would know we are Christians because of our love for each other, that Lord, they would see our good works and not give glory to us, that we wouldn't be building our own kingdoms, but they would glorify you, that they would see you, our Father in heaven. I pray, God, that you would help us to, to reconcile any differences, any gaps, any barriers or walls that would stand between us, Lord, that we would seek out brothers for the sake of uh, any complaint that there might be, or that we would seek out opportunities to forgive. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who've gone astray, that you would stir up in their hearts, bring them back into the family of God. Uh, Lord, give us opportunities to reach them, to love them, to care for them, and to show your love once again, to remind them of who they are and who's made them and your intent to be with them forever. I pray, God, that you would just be at work in our church family and all across the globe, that we would be united in presenting your gospel, your goodness, that we would be representatives of your kingdom on this earth, that we would go forth and proclaim this good news, this gospel that you are inviting all people, all tribes and tongues and nations into relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. I love you. Take care.